I'm so excited that you're joining us uh, this weekend as we kind of jump into our vision shifts. I love if we could just take a minute. Can we just take a minute and pray together? I'd love for you to pray with me. God, you're an extraordinary God who works in and through ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for your glory and for your purpose. And so we believe it's your power at work through all of us who follow you, trust you, surrender our lives to you. And you use that to bring glory to yourself through your church for the spread of the gospel for all people, for all generations forever. And I'm praying that as we celebrate your faithfulness these last 10 years, it'll ignite a faith forwardness into the future. Can't wait to see what you're going to do. I love you. We trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Love being able to celebrate what God's done the last 10 years. Love boldly inviting you into this endeavor uh, that we're running into together as we uh, partner with our kingdom partners in unique ways. Uh, this huge opportunity to continue to train next generation leaders, our leadership pipeline, do things here on our property, particularly on the north side of our building, uh, that we think are going to help make Jesus make sense. Uh, and then to parent our campuses in a responsible, good, effective way so that they can reach people for Christ as well as we continue to look for places where we can plant other campuses. Love for us to run into this adventure in a unique and unified way together. It's going to be almost $2 million over four years. And so for some of you, I'm asking you to do as you've done in the past in ventures like Next Move, Big Picture Project, uh, The Next Initiative. Many of you have given above and beyond in extraordinary, sacrificial, extravagant ways. And I want to thank you for that. And I want to invite you into this next leg of the journey. For some of you, maybe it's an opportunity to jump in. Maybe you've never uh, been able to be a part of investing in what God is doing here, and you want to be a part of that. And we're going to kind of run this journey together, and then on the 12th of February, get together and say, here, God, here's what we're going to do together, and Lord willing, we can accomplish these things but the big deal for me is this. As the campus pastor here at the Norton campus, the next four years, my desire is to lead, not just into these projects, but to lead into a movement of prayer, to lead and to stir a culture of discipleship, and to hopefully lead and to encourage a mindset of investment. Today, what I wanna to talk to you about for a few minutes is this movement of prayer. If we're honest, these last 10 years have been exciting. God's faithfulness has showed up all over the place here at the Norton campus. But if we just kind of step back and we'll realize something, the last two or three years have created quite a cultural confusion, quite a time of turmoil in our society. If you're paying attention, and I'm sure you are, it stirs this cauldron of emotions probably in all of us. Sometimes we feel a bunch of different emotions all at the same time. Like it can go from anger to sadness, frustration, anxiety, disappointment, discouragement, skepticism, mistrust. That cauldron gets stirred. Every time you turn on the news and, and you see uh, somebody, an innocent man maybe, who, uh, who is killed uh, in a gun shooting, or maybe you see a murder that's taken place, or maybe you watch as an overeager police officer kills a man. But that same cauldron of emotion is stirred when you see a society, a culture uh, that disrespects police officers or those in authority. 
Uh, that cauldron of emotion gets stirred every time you sniff out racism in our society, in our culture. And yet it equally gets stirred every time you see, in the name of justice, looting and towns being burned down. It's gotten stirred and uh, picked open during the COVID crisis, the political polarization, this hatred, this uh, division, this tribalism. One author put it this way, America is having a moral convulsion. Another author and pastor said this, we have a front row seat, I love this, a front row seat in a society that wants a king, but no kingdom. I think it's so true. And, and here's the tendency, here's the inclination. The inclination is to choose sides. We, we see the trouble, the disgrace going on in our culture. We see all this kind of upheaval and these problems and uh, this cauldron of emotions. And, and it becomes easy to choose sides. Uh, if you're a right-wing conservative and that's the camp you're in, then you are as sure as shooting the problem is the left-wing liberals. But if you're a left-wing liberal, you're as sure as shooting that the problem is the conservative right-wing. And here's the deal. No matter where you fit in that equation, you can go try to find things that will validate your opinion, that will prove your point. In fact, all too often prayer in our culture and with this cauldron of emotions Prayer becomes this kind of pleading to the almighty mascot that we want and think just kind of is the authoritative representation of our team. We assume that God's picked a side. It reminds me of this Old Testament passage in Joshua 5. You can look it up. When Joshua, before he goes and marches around the walls of Jericho that God told him to do because of the evil that was in the land, evil beyond what we could comprehend, he meets with this mysterious man who comes to be somebody, not just a man, but God kind of showed up in and through this man. And he looks at this man and he says this, whose side are you on? Joshua 5. Are you on our side? Or are you on their side? And that mysterious man who was a manifestation of God said this to Joshua. I'm fascinated by this. He said, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I love that because it makes me think this, that, that what in the world does a movement of prayer look like in a culture of opinions and protests and positions and posts and where we just assume God's on our side? We just assume, and I think a movement of prayer looks more like getting on God's side, more like lining up with God's vision, his purpose, and his heart more like bowing in his presence. And that's what leads us to where I want to go today. If you have a Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Lay that in your lap. Get a pen and paper, some things I think to write down about a movement of prayer. Nehemiah happened several hundred years after the encounter with Joshua. God's people had been taken into captivity. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now the Persian Empire is in charge. And under the Persian leadership, particularly Cyrus, some of the Jews that had been taken captive were allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But many Jews would have been born in Persia, would have risen in the ranks, found high-ranking jobs. Such was the case with Nehemiah. He was the cupbearer to the king. That means he tasted the wine before the king did, make sure it was okay. But many times those guys would build this kind of unique relationship with those in those positions. Here's what it says in Nehemiah 1. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. Nehemiah 1, it says this, These words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, 
while I was in the citadel of Susa, somewhere in Iran, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Nehemiah wants to know, how are things going back in Jerusalem? They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. That when his brother shows up, Nehemiah wants to know, hey, what's going on? How are things? What is it like? Give me the headline news. And when he does, he says, it's not good. There's a cauldron of emotion that goes with that, which led Nehemiah to verse four. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Guys, I'm fascinated with this. There's something interesting here. If we could just like camp here for a second. Some interesting things that I think are helpful to us as we talk about a movement of prayer that Nehemiah, when he got the headlines, when he saw what was happening, the trouble and the disgrace, the walls were broken down, that his first impulse, his natural reflex, wasn't to become an activist, wasn't to storm the situation, it wasn't to protest, it wasn't to picket, post his opinion on Facebook, it wasn't any of that. But his first impulse, his immediate instinct, his natural reflex was to recognize and to pray to the God who's present. And I think it tells me something about a movement of prayer. If you're taking notes, I would write it down this way, that a movement of prayer is a movement where prayer is our immediate natural impulse, not simply a religious ritual. That a movement of prayer is the natural impulse to recognize the God who's present. Can I just say it this way? It is the difference. It is the difference between religion and relationship. Some of you watching this are very religious and you pray. Most Americans say they pray. But our prayers many times are religious ritual. They're memorized prayers that we say in a certain moment during the day, before we eat, before we go to bed. Maybe we have memorized certain prayers for certain situations. But when you think about the way Nehemiah prayed, it was the natural response of a relationship that when I talk to God, it is the instinct for me to communicate with the Almighty. I use this illustration uh, that, that prayer is conversation. It's like, it's like talking. It's like a conversation that comes out of relationship. I think about my wife. I talk to her all day long. When things are bad, I call her. When things are good, I want to celebrate with her. When I want to just, I, I don't have a memorized kind of dialogue with my wife that I say when I get home and this is what we say in the morning when we get up. It's a conversation that erupts from a relationship. I'm fascinated with this, that Nehemiah said, I want you to hear because we're praying and it's not, just a, it's not just an instinct, it's not just an intuition, but it is constant, it's continuous. Begin to think, what, is a, what does a movement of prayer look like? It looks like what Paul said, pray without ceasing. It looks like parents whose natural impulse is to pray for their kids. It looks like students whose natural reflex is to pray for their friends at school. It looks like neighbors whose natural impulse is to pray for their neighbors. It looks like a church whose natural impulse is to pray for its community. 
It, it looks like a group of people whose natural impulse when things are good is to pray and thank God. When things are bad is to cry out to God. When they're treated unfair is to pray. It seems like a group of people when there's disagreement, their natural impulse is to talk to God. When they celebrate big victories, they pray. When they go through despair, they pray. When they make big decisions, that their natural instinct is to pray. And to pray constantly without ceasing, as Paul said. And when the cauldron of emotions gets stirred up in our culture, as it has the last two or three years, guess what? The people of God pray. But do you see what he did? Did you see what he did? That, that when he prayed, he fasted, he mourned, and he prayed. What is Nehemiah doing? You ought to write this down somewhere. He's lamenting with God. The situation in Israel among his people was, was dire. And it was a direct result of them turning their back on God. And here's what it did to Nehemiah. It twisted him up inside. When's the last time in your prayer you got twisted up inside because of what you saw going on around you? His heart was breaking for what broke God's heart. It tells me something that a movement of prayer is when my heart breaks for what breaks God's heart. That a movement of prayer is, is me lamenting with God. Our culture, our society doesn't have much space for lamenting and grieving. Let's just be honest, right? We, we're a society in search of a party. And, and, and the same is true in the church. Like, play the happy songs, right? And don't get me wrong, I love that. Like, I love the happy songs. But the truth is, Nehemiah saw what was going on with his people, and he could have said, what, well, hate to be them? <laughs> he goes, well, I hate to be them, or can't believe that's going on with them. But it stopped him. And it twisted him up, and he joined God in his grief and his heartache. Guys, I think about that in a movement of prayer. What would it be for us to be a part of a movement of prayer? To begin to allow to break our heart what breaks God's heart. When we look at this culture, the, the, the maybe the perversity, the division that isn't just in our culture, that's in the church. The tribalism. Everybody has an agenda. We're not sure where the truth is. And the minute you think you have a corner on the truth, or you're listening to the only podcast that's telling the truth, you're caught in the web. <laughs> and when we look at this culture, to grieve and lament, see, somehow we've taken that out of the equation. We forgot that one of the books of the Bible, one of the very books of the Bible, one of the very books of God's word is called Lamentations. It's written by the guy whose nickname was the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. And we forget that Jesus, even in the book of Luke, looks out over the culture of the city and he sees people and he says they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed and helpless. And the book of Luke tells us, guess what he did? He, he cried. I love Oswald Chambers says this, the old Puritans used to pray for the gift of tears. They called it one of God's greatest gifts to us. I think that a movement of prayer is saying, God, break our heart for what breaks your heart. God, this is the natural impulse and the reflex that we're going to come into your presence and we're asking you to break our heart for what breaks your heart. It's interesting, as the prayer goes on, then I said, O oh Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. I'm, I'm interested in who he addresses. He, he calls out and he's praying to the God of heaven who is great and awesome. Uh, Nehemiah is not praying to a God of his own imagination. He's not praying to a God that he just made up, but he's praying to a God. I don't know if you ever thought about this or not, that, that we can only know God because he's revealed himself to us. 
And he's praying to the Lord, the God of heaven. He's praying to Yahweh Elohim, Hebrew words. He's praying to the master, the sovereign one. This is the personal name of God who is the creator above all. There's none like him. He is great and he's awesome. There is no one like this God. And that word awesome means to be revered, set apart, who always acts like God, who keeps his covenant. He is faithful. He always does the right thing. I love how author Tim Keller puts it. Prayer is an invitation to have intimacy with the Almighty. Prayer is, is this weird combination of awe and intimacy. I'm in awe at the majesty, the greatness of God, and I'm invited into his presence, kind of like a kid. The true movement of prayer is getting God in his right spot, that God is not some heavenly guru in the sky, some, some, some spiritual vending machine that I come to to get what I want. God isn't that, but he's also not this disconnected, disinterested deity, but he is the Lord. He, that's the personal name. I can know him. He is the God of heaven. He's the creator of all. He is sovereign. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, who abounds in love and mercy. And he is the God who knows everything, even my name. And he is my Father who is in heaven, whose name is revered above all others. And a movement of prayer begins by getting in the spot where I recognize who it is I'm talking to. I'm talking to the Lord, the God of heaven. I've used this illustration many times uh, here at our campus. In fact, if you've been listening to me for any length of time, you probably have heard me say this. Um, but, but when my kids were growing up, uh, they would call me dad or daddy. And uh, that was an indication that they knew the spot, that there was no man on the planet who loved them more than I did. No man who was going to be in their corner more than I was. There, there was no man who who knew them like I knew them. And it also meant this, that I had this position in their life, this position of discipleship and discipline in their life. And so they would call me dad. And it kind of made, they, they were the kid and I was the dad. And we knew around the table that there was a certain role that I played and a certain role that they played. And, and I share the story with them. I remember the day Joel, my oldest, came in and instead of dad, he said, hey, dude. <laughs> and I knew we had a problem. Right? We, lost our, we lost our place. We lost our place. And I remember I said to him, hey, I'm, I'm not your dude, I'm your dad. I don't, I don't want you to lose your place. Nehemiah wanted to stay in the right place because the fact that he knew God was that God, the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome, meant he knew who he was. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of what? Say it out loud, you're what? Servant. You are God, I'm not. And I'm praying before you day and night for your servants. I'm praying for your servants, the people of Israel. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of, I know my place, your servant, and the prayer of your servants. See, that the issue is that I want to get God in his right spot. If you're taking notes, I'd write it this way. A movement of prayer postures ourselves to get God in his right spot. Like we're going to put God in his right spot, that this is God's story, not ours. When we get to play a role in God's story, when I get God in his rightful place, I, like Nehemiah, there are certain things that are going to happen. It automatically is going to place me in the right spot, and I'm going to be able to see others in their right spot. And then when I get God in his right spot, there are several things that happen. I become jealous, just like, just like Nehemiah, for God's glory. 
Like I become passionate for the glory of God, for much to be made of God. Like when, when a movement of prayer breaks out, that's what a group of people get jealous about. They delight in. And then you know what else? I'm going to be consumed with the needs of others. You see, here's what I know. Many times it's easy to, to get God in his wrong spot. I think of it this way. I've just written in my, my Bible. It's easy to see God almost like Aladdin in God's the Genie. And we rub on the, the lamp and boom. But then when we're done with him, it's like all-powerful God, itty-bitty living space. We'll call you when we need you. And we put God in his wrong space. And when I get God in his wrong space, guess what? I begin to view God, right, ready, as a supporting actor in my story. And I begin to look at everyone else who I come into contact with as an extra in my story. You see, Nehemiah got God in his right place. A movement of prayer among us. If it's going to happen, we've got to get God in his right place. And when that happens, we'll become consumed and delighted and jealous for his glory to spread much to be made of him. And we'll be consumed with the needs of others. He's praying for the needs of others he could have written off. The movement of prayer. I'm fascinated by kind of what comes next. He says this then. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. It's fascinating to me. He laments and then he confesses. This is interesting because nowhere are we told that Nehemiah committed some specific sin that contributed to Jerusalem and their situation. It would have been so easy for him to sit back and give a critical commentary as to why the people back in Judah, particularly in Jerusalem, were in the situation they were. And I think the same thing is true for us. Guys, it is so easy for the church, for us, for those who are followers of Christ, to pontificate on the problems in our society and very rarely does it lead us to the conclusion that we are the problem. You know what's more natural? It's more natural for us to offer critical commentary on what's going on in our world. You see, when I read Nehemiah's prayer, there's something that smells different about his prayer. And I think that difference is what a movement of prayer ignites. That a movement of prayer ignites contrite confession instead of a condemning commentary. Man, that's big. It is, just, just think about this for a minute. It is way easier for me to be an expert in your sin while being totally unaware of my own. I wonder when the last time any of us, just be honest, I'll be honest with you, have looked at what's going on in our world, our country, our society, the church at large, and thought, I'm part of the problem. I love this story in the early 1900s. G.K. Chesterton, one, it was a very famous pastor, very powerful pastor. And uh, he was asked by a London newspaper, the London Times, asked him and a bunch of other prominent pastors to write an article answering this question. What is wrong with our world? What's wrong with our world? Don't you have that question? How would you have, like, we'd have given a big, long list of things, right? Well, I can tell you. Let's start here. I love his answer. Chesterton's response was sent to them with a brief letter that said this, Dear Sir, regarding your article, 
What is wrong with our world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Man, when's the last time that any of us have prayed to the point where we realize that what we see and what we lament over, that we actually participate in? When's the last time we've confessed that? You see, Nehemiah has two layers to this. One's personal and one's corporate. He confesses his sin and then the sins of the people that he is identified with. When's the last time that we have confessed our personal sin and how we're part of the problem? You're like, well, how am I part of the problem? Well, anytime I've misplaced hope, I'm part of the problem. Anytime that I have lacked a seriousness in my discipleship to Jesus, I'm part of the problem. Anytime that I've been complacent in leading my family to the very heart of God, I'm part of the problem. Anytime I have chosen not to love my neighbors with compassion, I'm part of the problem. Anytime that I have displayed a calloused or judgmental heart, I'm part of the problem. Anytime I have posted my unedited opinions in a way that do not reflect the Spirit of Christ, I'm part of the problem. I think what Nehemiah is doing here is illustrative for all of us who call Jesus Savior and Lord. That I gotta realize where I'm part of the problem. I'm reading a book called Pray Like Monks, Live Like Fools. I love it. This is what the author says. He says, one of the biggest mistakes we've made in the modern church is to reimagine spiritual maturity as the need to confess less. The unspoken assumption is as I ascend in relationship with God, I confess less because I must have less to confess. True spiritual maturity, the author says, is the opposite. It's not ascension, but it's like an archaeological dig as we discover layer after layer of what is in us all along. Spiritual maturity means more confession, not less. Maturity is discovering the depths of my personal brand of fallenness and the depths to which God's grace has really penetrated, even without me knowing it. The desperate need of our time, he says, is not for successful Christians, popular Christians, or even winsome Christians, but it's for deep Christians willing to do the archaeological dig. The pathway for maturity, he says, is not an ascent, it's a descent. A maturing church is a confessing church, not a church without sin, but a church without secrets. Nehemiah prays and he does the, the archaeological dig and he says, I've been wicked, I'm part of the problem. But then he says, we're part of the problem. And I think a, a movement of prayer recognizes that, that even we as a church confessing. I don't know what you think, but looking over the last two or three years, there, there's times when I'm like, Ugh. in fact, if you're watching this and you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a church, in fact, maybe you're somebody who's skeptical of church, can I say this? I am so sorry. Please forgive us. We can do better than that. We haven't always displayed the heart and the mind of the one that we follow and that we worship. And I think it's important for the church to recognize this, to say, please God, forgive us for not representing the spirit of Jesus to the world. Please forgive us for our, at times, tribalism, our divisiveness. Please forgive us for our prayerlessness. Please forgive us for in the name of evangelicalism, substituting your mission, God, with a mission that we've made up 
a mission that somehow is legislating morality or thinking that it's our mission to get the right people elected or it's our mission to tell the world how awful it is and forfeiting your mission for what we have adopted as our mission. You see, we've become part of the problem, the movement of prayer. Instead of being this condemning commentary and this community that just kind of, it's going to be a community of people with contrite confession. I think Nehemiah goes on and he says, remember the instruction. He's talking to God now. He says, remember, he's like, it's kind of weird. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's reminding God of what he said. That seems weird. Does he think God forgot? No. Does he think God's not going to say what he said he would do? No. Nehemiah is demonstrating something that I think gets lost in prayer. It's important. It's why some of us are disillusioned with prayer. It's why some of us get frustrated with prayer. Because we go into prayer thinking prayer is all about me praying my will, our will, our kingdom, and God listening. And so then we get frustrated because we're like, is God listening to me? Does God hear me? But I want to teach you something about prayer and it might change your perspective. Prayer is not first and foremost me expressing my feelings to God, but prayer is first and foremost, listen close, me hearing God and answering him and inviting that his will be done in his kingdom to advance in my life. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He says, I've heard from you. And when I hear from you, it's going to lead me to repentance. And when I hear from you, it's going to lead me into your promises. The question is, do I hear God? Am I answering God? A movement of prayer, if you're taking notes, is a movement that's aware of what God has said and wants to join him in what he's doing. It makes me think this. The other day, my, my wife and I have this running joke. She is sure that I'm hard of hearing. And I'm getting harder of hearing. But I can tell you something that if you don't email or don't tell her I said this online and uh, don't text her, but my wife is getting a little hard of hearing too. I'm just going to say that, that we both are. And what's interesting is when you're hard of hearing, you, my kids, when they come over, they're like, y'all are funny because you like having a conversation, but you're talking about two different things. Like the other day, literally this happened. We, we, we were expecting some people to come to the house to pick us up. We were going to go somewhere. And I was sitting in the living room. She was in the kitchen. And I said, what time are they coming? And she said, black raspberry. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew black raspberry was a time? I didn't know. You see, the same thing is true with God. When I don't know what he said, I'm responding in my prayer to something, but it's not at all what the conversation was he was having. Every poll, every poll that I can find says not only are Americans unaware of what the Bible says, but American Christians, let me even take it further, American evangelicals don't know what the Bible says. And when they don't know what the Bible says, it becomes easy for Satan to do what he's been doing from the very beginning, and that is to trick us and to stump us, even using God's word to do it. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, true prayer is not just talking to God. It's answering God. God has already spoken in his word. Prayer is just a response to what he said. See, 
movement of prayer is going to take serious. I want to hear what God says. I want to be doing what he's doing. I, I've shared this before as well, but every time I think of that, I think of when, when my kids were little, my youngest, his name was Aaron, and I would come home and he would have a question every time. He's like, Dad, what are we doing tonight? Like that was the question. Like, like whatever, because here's what he was going to do. Whatever he had planned, he was going to adjust because he wanted to do what we were doing. He wanted to do what I was doing. I think that's part of what prayer is. I want to hear what you're doing because I want to adjust my life, my plans. A, a church, a group of people, an individual that is part of a movement of prayer is going to adjust their life to do what he's doing because they've heard what he said. And then what's interesting is Nehemiah says to God, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. That's a big prayer, by the way. That's a risky prayer, daring prayer. I was the cupbearer to the king. If you know the story, then the time is right. And he went to the king and the king can realize something's wrong. And he says, what do you want? And even in that moment, his natural reflex and impulse is to pray. Like he is so aware of God's presence. And he answers the king in a spirit of prayer. And he says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. I think the point is this, that a movement of prayer is a movement that asks God to do what only he can do. Let's stop there for a minute. Like There are things that only God can do. When you look at the culture, the world, your neighbors, your friends, your family, our church, there's things. And it's saying, God, stretch out your hand and do what only you can do. This is illustrated all throughout the Bible. That Joseph, when he stood before Pharaoh to interpret the dream, Pharaoh was going to be impressed if he could interpret the dream. Joseph would not take the credit. He said, I can't do it, God can. Daniel did the same and he stood before the king. The apostles did the same in the book of Acts. We can't, he can. Like there are things, guys, that God can do that we just can't do and that we come before him and we pray God-sized prayers. We pray bold and daring prayers. I heard somebody put it this way. If God answered all your prayers this week, would you be wowed by God? Like sometimes we make these itty-bitty little prayers. He's saying, God, I want you to do something that's bold and daring. What Nehemiah asked was bold and daring. But God, would you do what only you can do so that we can do what you ask us to do? That it's not just enough to be a people of prayer, but in a movement of prayer, there are a people who are willing to move. That it's a people who ask and then they act. That, that, that prayer is simply the furnace for missions. That fruitfulness comes from our intimacy with God. This is what's interesting about that. Like if I ask people to get excited about a certain mission project, I have no problem getting people excited. But if I ask people to come and to join in a meeting, in a moment, in a situation of prayer, that's a different story. Yet the truth is we get them backwards. God, we need you to do what you can do. And then we want to move and do what we can do. For Nehemiah, that was rebuild Jerusalem. But for the church of Jesus Christ is to be the body and the spirit of Christ. To be ambassadors of hope in this world that is looking for hope. To make Jesus make sense, to ignite a gospel-centered movement. And oftentimes, friends, listen to me, in a movement of prayer, oftentimes we are the answer to the prayer that we're praying if we would just trust him and take him at his word. That we want our kids to get a hold of God and we just hope 
that he'll bring somebody along in their life. They'll point them to him only to find out where the answer to that prayer is parents. That you students watching me right now, you so bad want to make a difference in your high school, your friends to come to Christ. Only find out that God wants to use you. I read of a junior high student who was skeptical about God, who wasn't sure about God, who was challenged by a mentor in his life to every day in the summer pray for every student in his school. And so he did. He took the dare and he walked around his school every day with a big old piece of paper, every kid's name on it, prayed. When the school year started, he asked his principal if he could start this itty-bitty little Bible study in a little room back in the corner. And he did. By the end of the year, they couldn't find a room big enough in the school to hold everybody that was coming so they could learn about Jesus from this junior high kid. You see, we want to see our neighbors come to Christ where the answer to the prayer. We want to see the next generation impacted, really get a hold of God. And we hope somebody would do that only to find out where the answer to the prayer. We want to see God do incredible things in our church. God wants the church, you and I, to be the hands and the feet together. What would it mean for us to pray big prayers? What would it mean for you to pray big prayers? Us to pray big, daring, bold prayers. And those big, daring, bold prayers, listen to me, are followed by big, daring, bold faith because we follow an extraordinary God who does extraordinary things through ordinary people who will trust him. Nehemiah did that. And literally in 52 days, against all odds, Against all odds, the wall was built. Nehemiah had a next near to impossible mission. Nehemiah had to gather a group of weary, tired, disillusioned, discouraged people and keep them focused. And he had to do it against opposition, adversity, over and over again. And they built the wall in 52 days. And when the enemies heard about it, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? They realized the work had been done with the help of our God. I don't want to do what we can do here. I want to be a part of what he's doing, which is exactly what happened in the book of Acts when very quickly the people that he sent to build the church face adversity and they want to kill the apostles for preaching in the name of Jesus. And this old man stands up, and this is some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. He says, I advise you in this present case, leave these men alone, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. I don't know about you, but that sure sounds like what I want to be a part of. A movement of prayer that says, God, we want, we, we, we don't want you to choose our side. Are you for us, against us, like the book of Joshua? But we want to bow in your presence and we want to be on your side. We want to be connected to you, identified with you. We want a king, and we're going to follow you. I want to invite you on this journey. Would you come with me on this journey for the next four years? We want to jumpstart it with 21 days of prayer. Go to the website, through all four. I'll check out the vision. Get involved in 21 days of praying. Set your alarm, 320 every day. Ephesians 320. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Pray with us for a big vision, big faith, that God would break our hearts for lost people, that we would be in the right position knowing who he is. And when that happens, we'd be jealous for his glory, jealous that much would be made of him, consumed with the needs of others. 
and that we would come before him with a humble and contrite heart saying, God, forgive me for how I, we are part of the problem. And God, we want to hear you. Make us hearers of your word so that we can join in with what you're doing. And we're going to pray big prayers, daring prayers, bold prayers. They're going to be followed by big, daring, and bold faith. So God, I pray that you would work in us and through us, through all of us who claim the name of Jesus for the sake of the gospel, for all people, for all generations, forever. God, I pray, I pray that you would do things that when we look back, we can say, there's no way that happened but for God. I pray this in Jesus' name.